Part One of Chapter Three of Little Eve Edgerton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Eve Edgerton by Eleanor Hallowell Abbott. Part One of Chapter Three. What? demanded her father. Altogether unexpectedly, little Eve Edgerton threw back her tousled head and burst out laughing. Oh, father, she jeered, can't you take a joke? I don't know as you ever offered me one before, growled her father a bit ungraciously. All the same, asserted little Eve Edgerton, with sudden seriousness. All the same, father, he did stop breathing twice. And I worked, and I worked, and I worked over him. Slowly, her great eyes widened. And, oh, father, his skin, she whispered simply. Hush, snapped her father with a great gust of resentment that he took to be a gust of propriety. Hush, I say. I tell you it isn't delicate for a, for a girl to talk about a man's skin. Oh, but his skin was very delicate, mused little Eve Edgerton persistently. There in the lantern light. What lantern light? demanded her father. And the moonlight, murmured little Eve Edgerton. What moonlight? demanded her father. A trifle quizzically, he stepped forward and peered into his daughter's face. Personally, Eve, he said, I don't care for the young man, and I certainly don't wish to hear anything about his skin. Not anything. Do you understand? I'm very glad you saved his life he hastened to affirm. It was very commendable of you, I'm sure, and someone, doubtless, will be very much relieved. But for me, personally, the incident is closed. Closed, I said. Do you understand? Brusquely, he turned back toward his own room, and then swung around again suddenly in the doorway. Eve, he frowned. That was a joke, wasn't it? What you said about wanting to keep that young man. "'Why, of course,' said little Eve Edgerton. "'Well, I must say, it was an exceedingly clumsy one,' growled her father irritably. "'Maybe so,' droned little Eve Edgerton with unruffled serenity. "'It was the first joke, you see, that I ever made.' Slowly again her eyes began to widen. "'All the same, father,' she said, "'his—' "'Hush!' he ordered, and slammed the door conclusively behind him. Very thoughtfully for a moment, little Eve Edgerton kept right on standing there in the middle of the room. In her eyes was just the faintest possible suggestion of a smile, but there was no smile whatsoever about her lips. Her lips, indeed, were quite drawn and most flagrantly set with the expression of one who, having something determinate to say, will yet say it, somewhere, sometime, somehow, though the skies fall and all the waters of the earth dry up. Then, like the dart of a bird, she flashed to her father's door and opened it. Father, she whispered. Father. Yes, answered the huff-muffled, pillowy voice. What is it? Oh, I forgot to tell you something that happened once, down in Indochina, whispered little Eve Edgerton. Once you were away, she confided breathlessly, I pulled a half-drowned coolie out of a canal. Well, what of it? asked her father a bit tartly. Oh, nothing special, 
said little Eve Edgerton, except that his skin was like yellow parchment and sandpaper and old plaster. Without further ado, then, she turned away and except for the single ecstatic episode of making the four hundred muffins for breakfast, resumed her pulseless role of being just little Eve Edgerton. As for Barton, the subsequent morning hours brought sleep, and sleep only. The sort of sleep that fairly souses the senses in oblivion, weighing the limbs with lead, the brain with stupor, till the sleeper rolls out from under the load at last, like one half-paralyzed with cramp and helplessness. Certainly it was long after noontime before Barton actually rallied his aching bones, his dizzy head, his refractory inclinations to meet the fluctuant sympathy and shaft that awaited him downstairs in every nook and corner of the great idle-minded hotel. Conscientiously, but without enthusiasm, from the temporary retreat of the men's waiting-room, he sent up his card at last to Mr. Edgerton, and was duly informed that that gentleman and his daughter were mountain-climbing. In an absurd flare of disappointment, then, he edged his way out through the prattling piazza groups to the shouting tennis players, and on from the shouting tennis players to the teasing golfers, and back from the teasing golfers to the peaceful writing-room, where in a great lazy chair by the open window he settled down once more, with unwanted morbidness, to brood over the grimly bizarre happenings of the previous night. In a soft blur of sound and sense the names of other people came wafting to him from time to time, and once or twice at least the word Barton shrilled out at him with astonishing poignancy. Still like a man half-drugged, he dozed again, and woke in a vague sweating terror, and dozed again, and dreamed again, and roused himself at last with the one violent determination to hook his sleeping consciousness, whether or no, into the nearest conversation that he could reach. The conversation going on at the moment just outside his window was not a particularly interesting one to hook one's attention into, but at least it was fairly distinct. In blissfully rational human voices, two unknown men were discussing the non-domesticity of the modern woman. It was not an erudite discussion, but just a mere personal complaint. I had a house, wailed one, the nicest, coziest house you ever saw. We were two years building it, and there was a garden, a real jim-dandy flower and vegetable garden, and there were twenty-seven fruit trees. But my wife, the whale deepened, my wife, she just would live in a hotel. Couldn't stand the strain, she said, of planting food three times a day. Not couldn't stand the strain of earning meals three times a day, you understand, the wailing voice added significantly but couldn't stand the strain of ordering them. People all around you, you know, starving to death for just bread, but she couldn't stand the strain of having to decide between squab and tenderloin, eh? Oh, Lordy, you can't tell me anything, snapped the other voice more incisively. Houses. I've had four. First it was the cellar my wife wanted to eliminate. Then it was the attic. Then it was... We're living in an apartment now, he finished abruptly. An apartment, mind you, one of those blankety-blank-blank-blank apartments. Hmm, wailed the first voice again. 
There's hardly a woman you meet these days who hasn't got rouge on her cheeks. But a man's got to go back two generations, I guess, if he wants to find one that's got any flower on her nose. Flower on her nose, interrupted the sharper voice. Flower on her nose. Oh, ye gods, I don't believe there's a woman in this whole hotel who'd know flower if she saw it. Women don't care any more, I tell you, they don't care. Just as a mere bit of physical stimulus, the crescendous stridency of the speech roused Barton to a lazy smile. Then altogether unexpectedly, across indifference, across drowsiness, across absolute physical and mental non-concern, the idea behind the speech came hurtling to him and started him bolt upright in his chair. Ha! he thought, I know a girl that cares. From head to foot a sudden warm sense of satisfaction glowed through him, a throb of pride, a puffiness of the chest. Ha! he gloated. Then interruptingly from outside the window he heard the click of chairs hitching a bit nearer together. Psst! whispered a voice. Who's the freak in the 1830s clothes? Why, that's the little Edgerton girl, piped the other voice cautiously. It isn't so much the 1830 clothes as the 1830 expression that gets me. Where in creation? Oh, upon my soul, groaned the man whose wife would live in a hotel. Oh, upon my soul, if there's one thing that I can't stand, it's a woman who hasn't any style. If I had my way, he, thre he threatened with hissing emphasis, if I had my way, I tell you, I'd have every homely-looking woman in the world put out of her misery. Put out of my misery is what I mean. Ha, 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 chuckled the other voice. Ha, 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 gibbed both voices ecstatically together. With quite unnecessary haste, Barton sprang to the window and looked out. It was Eve Edgerton, and she did look funny. Not especially funny, but just plain, everyday little Eve Edgerton. Funny in a shabby old English trapping suit, with a knapsack slung askew across one shoulder, a faded alpine hat yanked down across her eyes, and one steel-wristed little hand dragging a mountain laurel bush almost as big as herself. Close behind her followed her father, equally shabby, his shapeless pockets fairly bulging with rocks, a battered tin botany kit in one hand, a dingy black camera box in the other. Impulsively, Barton started out to meet them, but just a step from the threshold of the piazza door, he sensed for the first time the long line of smokers watching the two figures grinningly above their puffy brown pipes and cigars. What is it? called one smoker to another. Moving day in jungle town? Ha ha ha! tittered the whole line of smokers. Ha 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 ha! So because he belonged, not so much to the type of person that can't stand having its friends laughed at, as to the type that can't stand having friends who are liable to be laughed at, Barton changed his mind, quite precipitately, about identifying himself at that particular moment with the Edgerton family and whirled back instead to the writing room. There, by the aid of the hotel clerk and two bellboys, and three new blotters, and a different pen, and an entirely fresh bottle of ink, and just exactly the right sized, the right tinted sort of letter paper, he concocted a perfectly charming note to little Eve Edgerton, a note full of compliment, of gratitude, of sincere appreciation, reiterating even once more his persistent intention of rendering her somewhere 
some time a really significant service. Whereupon, thus duly relieved of his truly honest effort at self-expression, he went back again to his own kind, to the prattling, the well-groomed, the ultra-fashionables of both mind and body. And there on the shining tennis courts and the soft golf greens, through the late yellow afternoon and the first gray thread of twilight, the old sickening ennui came creeping back to his senses, warring chaotically there with the natural nervous reaction of his recent adventure, till just out of sheer morbid unrest, as soon as the flower-scented candle-lighted dinner hour was over, he went stalking round and round the interminable piazzas, hunting in every dark corner for Mr. Edgerton and his daughter. Meeting them abruptly at last in the full glare of the office, he clutched fatuously at Mr. Edgerton's reluctant attention with some quick question about the extraordinary moonlight, and stood by, grinning like any bashful schoolboy, while Mr. Edgerton explained to him severely, as if it were his fault, just why and to what extent the rady of mountain moonlight differed from the rady of any other kind of moonlight, and Eve herself, in absolute spiritual remoteness, stood patiently, shifting her weight from one foot to the other, staring abstractedly all the time at the floor under her feet. Right into the midst of this instructive discourse broke one of Barton's men-friends with a sharp jog of his elbow and a brief apologetic nod to the Edgertons. "'Oh, I say, Barton,' cried the newcomer breathlessly, "'that wedding, you know, over across at the Kentons to-night, with the Viennese orchestra, and heaven knows what from New York, well, we've shanghaied the whole business for a dance here to-morrow night. Music, flowers, palms, catering, everything.' It's going to be the biggest little dancing party that this slice of North American scenery ever saw, and— Slowly little Eve Edgerton lifted her great solemn eyes to the newcomer's face. A party? she drawled. A— a dancing party? You mean? A real— Christian dancing party? Dully the big eyes drooped again, and as if in mere casual mannerism, her little brown hands went creeping up to the white breast of her gown, then just as startling, just as unprovable as the flash of a shooting star, her glance flashed up at Barton. "'Oh!' gasped little Eve Edgerton. "'Oh!' said Barton. Astoundingly, in his ears, bells seemed suddenly to be ringing. His head was a whirl, his pulses fairly pounding with the weird, quixotic purport of his impulse. "'Miss Edgerton,' he began— Miss, then right behind him two older men joggled him awkwardly in passing. And that Miss Von Eden chuckled one man to another. Lordy, there'll be more than forty men after her for tomorrow night. Smith, Arnold, Hudson, Hazelton, who are you betting will get her? I'm betting that I will, crashed every brutally competitive male instinct in Barton's body. Impetuously he broke away from the Edgertons and darted off to find Miss Von Eden before Smith, Arnold, Hudson, Hazelton, or any other man should find her. So he sent little Eve Edgerton a great gorgeous box of candy instead, wonderful candy, pounds and pounds of it, fine fluted chocolates and pink rose bonbons and fat sugared violets and all sorts of tin-foiled mysteries of fruit and spice. And when the night of the party came, he strutted triumphantly to it with Helen von Eaton, 
who already at twenty was beginning to be just a little bit bored with parties, and together through all that riot of music and flowers and rainbow colors and dazzling lights they trotted and tangoed with monotonous perfection, the envied and admired of all beholders, two superbly physical young specimens of manhood and womanhood, desperately condoning each other's dullness for the sake of each other's good looks. And while youth and its laughter, a chaos of color and shrill crescendos, was surging back and forth across the flower-wreathed piazzas, and violins were wheedling, and Japanese lanterns drunk with candlelight were bobbing gaily in the balsam-scented breeze, little Eve Edgerton, upstairs in her own room, was kneeling crampishly on the floor by the open window, with her chin on the window-sill, staring quizzically down, down on all that joy and novelty, till her father called her a trifle impatiently at last from his microscope table on the other side of the room. "'Eve,' summoned her father, "'what an idler you are! Can't you see how worried I am over this specimen here? My eyes, I tell you, aren't what they used to be.' Then patiently little Eve Edgerton scrambled to her feet and crossed over to her father's table pushed his head mechanically aside, and, bending down, squinted her own eyes close to his magnifying glass. "'Bell-shaped calyx,' she began. Five petals of the corollary partly united. Why, it must be some relation to the Mexican rain-tree,' she mumbled without enthusiasm. "'Leaves alternate, bipinate, very typically, few foliate,' she continued. "'Why, it's a—a a pithecolombium.' "'Sure enough,' said Edgerton. "'That's what I thought all the time.' As one eminently relieved of all future worry in the matter, he jumped up, pushed away his microscopic work, and, grabbing up the biggest book on the table, bolted unceremoniously for an easy chair. Indifferently, for a moment, little Eve Edgerton stood watching him. Then heavily, like a sleepy, insistent puppy-dog, she shambled across the room and, climbing up into her father's lap, shoved aside her father's book and burrowed her head triumphantly back into the lean, bony curve of his shoulder. Her whole yawning interest centered, apparently, in the toes of her father's slippers. Then, so quietly that it scarcely seemed abrupt, "'Father,' she asked, "'was my mother beautiful?' "'What?' gasped Edgerton." What? Bristling with a grave sort of astonishment, he reached up nervously and stroked his daughter's hair. Your mother, he winced, your mother was, to me, the most beautiful woman that ever lived. Such expression, he glowed, such fire, but of such a spiritual modesty, of such a physical delicacy, like a rose, he mused. Like a rose that should refuse to bloom for any but the hand that gathered it. Languorously, from some good practical pocket, little Eve Edgerton extracted a much-befrilled chocolate bonbon and sat there munching it with extreme thoughtfulness. Then, Father, she whispered, I wish I was like Mother. Why? asked Edgerton, wincing. Because Mother's dead, she answered simply. Noisily, like an overconscious throat, the tiny traveling clock on the mantelpiece began to swallow its moments. One moment, two moments, three, four, five, six moments, seven moments, on, 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 gutturally, laboriously, 
thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, even twenty, with the girl still nibbling at her chocolate, and the man still staring off into space with that strange little whimper of pain between his pale, shrewd eyes. It was the man who broke the silence first. Precipitately he shifted his knees and jostled his daughter to her feet. Eve, he said, you're awfully spleeny tonight. I'm going to bed. And he stalked off into his own room, slamming the door behind him. Once again, from the middle of the floor, little Eve Edgerton stood staring blankly after her father. Then she dawdled across the room and opened his door just wide enough to come past the corners of her mouth. Father, she whispered, did mother know that she was a rose before you were clever enough to find her? No, faltered her father's husky voice. That was the miracle of it. She never even dreamed that she was a rose until I found her. Very quietly, little Eve Edgerton shut the door again and came back into the middle of her room and stood there hesitatingly for an instant. Then quite abruptly she crossed to her bureau and pushing aside the old ivory toilet articles began to jerk her tously hair first one way and then another across her worried forehead. But if you knew you were a rose, she mused perplexedly to herself, that is, if you felt almost sure that you were, she added with sudden humility, that is, she corrected herself, that is, if you felt almost sure that you could be a rose, if anybody wanted you to be one. In impulsive experimentation she gave another tweak to her hair and pinched a poor bruised-looking little blush into the hollow of one thin little cheek. But suppose it was the, the people going by, she faltered, who never even dreamed that you were a rose. Suppose it was the... Suppose it was, suppose, dejection unspeakable settled suddenly upon her, an agonizing sense of youth's futility. Rackingly above the crash and lilt of music, the quick wild thud of dancing feet, the sharp staccato notes of laughter, she heard the dull, heavy, unrhythmical tread of the oncoming years, gray years, limping eternally from tomorrow on through unloved lands, on unloved errands. This is the end of youth. It is, it is, it is, whimpered her heart. It isn't something suddenly poignant and determinate shrilled startlingly in her brain. I'll have one more peep at youth anyway, threatened the brain. If we only could, yearned the discouraged heart. Speculatively, for one brief instant, the girl stood cocking her head toward the door of her father's room. Then, expeditiously, if not fashionably, she began to at once to rearrange her tousled hair, and after one single pat to her gown, surely the quickest toilet-making of that festive evening, she snatched up a slipper in each hand, crept safely past her father's door, crept safely out at last through her own door into the hall, and still carrying a slipper in each hand, had reached the head of the stairs before a new complexity assailed her. Why, why, I've never yet been anywhere alone without my mother's memory, she faltered aghast. Then impetuously, with a little frown of material inconvenience, but no flicker whatsoever in the fixed spiritual habit of her life, she dropped her slippers on the floor, 
sped back to her room, hesitated on the threshold a moment with real perplexity, darted softly to her trunk, rummaged as noiselessly through it as a kitten's paws, discovered at last a special object of her quest, a filmy square of old linen and lace, thrust it into her belt with her own handkerchief, and went creeping back again to her slippers at the head of the stairs. As if to add fresh nervousness to the situation, one of the slippers lay pointing quite boldly downstairs, but the other slipper, true as a compass to the north, towed with unmistakable severity toward the bedroom. Tentatively, little Eve Edgerton inserted one foot in the timid slipper. The path back to her room was certainly the simplest path that she knew, and the dullest. Equally tentatively, she withdrew from the timid slipper and tried the adventurous one. Ouch! she cried out loud. The sole of the second slipper seemed fairly sizzling with excitement. With a slight gasp of impatience, then she reached out and pulled the timid slipper back into line, stepped firmly into it, pointed both slipper toes unswervingly southward, and proceeded on downstairs to investigate the Christian dance. At the first turn of the lower landing she stopped short, with every ennui darkened sense in her body jacked like a wild deer's senses before the sudden dazzle of sight, sound, scent that awaited her below. Before her blinking eyes she saw even the empty humdrum hotel office turned into a blazing bower of palms and roses and electric lights. Beyond this bower a corridor opened out more dense, more sweet, more sparkling, and across this corridor the echo of the unseen ball came diffusing through the palms, the plaintive cry of a violin, the rippling laugh of a piano, the swarming hum of human voices, the swish of skirts, the agitant thud, thud, thud of dancing feet, the throb almost of young hearts, a thousand commonplace everyday sounds merged here and now into one magic harmony that thrilled little Eve Edgerton as nothing on God's big earth had ever thrilled her before. Hurriedly she darted down the last flight of steps and sped across the bright office to the dark veranda, consumed by one fuming, passionate, utterly uncontrollable curiosity to see with her own eyes just what all that wonderful sound looked like. End of Part 1, Chapter 3